This past week I have been re-watching some episodes of the recent program, The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen that or not. <clears throat> I happen to, uh, to love the way they're telling and retelling the gospel story. One of the things that I have appreciated is that they, they show some of the squabbling that goes on between the disciples. You know, here are disciples who came from different uh, parts of the country, different political perspectives, different occupations. And uh, we know that in Scripture, as we're reading the Gospel stories, they, they didn't always pick up real fast what Jesus was putting down. Uh, but we don't often see some of the squabbling that undoubtedly took place as they were gradually being molded into Christ-likeness, coming to be one in Christ. And so they've got uh, nicknames for each other and... One of the ones I was reminded of was that uh, Simon Peter in particular likes to call John the Baptist Creepy John. You know, you don't see that, uh, some of that background on John the Baptist in Luke's gospel, but in Matthew and Mark, of course, we get the description of his camel hair clothing and his locust diet, and you can kind of understand why people would call him Creepy John, but... (laughs) We're going to spend some time with his story in Luke's version, chapter 3, if you want to begin moving there. This passage that uh, gives us perhaps the, the glimpse into the most important part of John's brief career as the forerunner of the Messiah breaks down very neatly into four parts of the story, so I will read each part and make a few comments before we move on, starting with chapter 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, kind of placing this guy pretty pretty specifically in time, right? All those references to who was in charge of whatever. So in, the, in that time, during the pre, high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John was most likely raised, remember he was born to parents who were old age when he was born, so they probably didn't survive him by very many years, and the speculation is, based on the evidence that we can glean from the Gospels, that John was probably raised by 
one of the sects of Judaism known as the Essenes, the Qumran community. This is the 75th anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so I've been reading a little bit more about that. And So John was probably raised, perhaps out in those Dead Sea uh, communities of the, of the Essenes, one of the things perhaps that he spent his time, because we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that one of the things that the Essenes spent their time doing was copying scripture. I can see John the Baptist, a, a boy, perhaps a young man, spending hours and hours every day writing on scrolls the words of the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but if you spend much time copying something over and over again, perhaps you probably begin to soak up more of that truth, more of that scripture than you would just by going to the synagogue once a week. I can see John copying scripture, drawing closer and closer and closer to his God through that pondering and copying meditating on scripture, giving the opportunity for God to present himself to John the Baptist in a way perhaps that few other people in the Holy Land at that time had the opportunity to do. But also as I'm reading this passage, one of the phrases that came to my mind is that John was a sleeper agent of God. You know, we've, we've watched the spy movies, right? The sleeper agent is the person who was raised from childhood, perhaps, to, to blend in with some foreign culture placed there by some uh, foreign power that wants to have spies that will blend in and, and, and not be noticed. And so the sleeper agent is raised in this under, other country, in this other culture, until some time when, when they're needed, when they're activated. And I don't know, pardon me for my imagination, but that's what was going through my mind as I was reading the story of John out there in the wilderness, a sleeper agent of God being trained to recognize the voice of God by copying scripture, perhaps. Let's get back to reality, though. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Every tax, or even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This second part of this story focuses on the, the thing that is required at the coming of the Messiah, the thing that God wants those of us who are waiting for the Messiah to do. And that, that's summed up in one word. It's, it's the word repentance. 
And various groups that were going out to him asked, well, how, what does repentance look like in our life? It, it may look like sharing what you have. Not being greedy, not extorting from people over whom you have power. Being content with what you have. Ultimately, it's producing good fruit. Repent and produce good fruit, John says. That's, that's how you can be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. So the second part of the story is this one-word summary of what the first step is to meeting the Messiah. It's repentance. Let's pick up with verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. The third part of this story is a thumbnail sketch of what the Messiah's mission will be when he comes. His mission is going to be a Holy Spirit harvest. An ingathering of people who have repented for their sinfulness and their sinful ways and have thrown themselves on the mercy of God. It's going to be a winnowing of that crop because there are people who will not repent. There are people who will continue in their prideful, lustful ways. John says, get ready by repenting, because one is going to come who is going to gather those who have repented in a Holy Spirit harvest. And then finally, verses 19 and 20. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. If in the beginning of this story we see the sleeper agent being activated, then at the end of this story we see the brief, the conclusion of the brief career of John the Baptist. He would, in not very much time, become the first martyr of Jesus the Messiah. Speaking truth to power got him in trouble. John the Baptist plays his brief but vitally important role in the story of Jesus and this gospel story. And I suspect that when Luke was writing this, the reason he has included the word, uh, two references to the word wilderness, one back at the end of chapter one and now here, indicating the importance of the wilderness in John the Baptist's life. That Time away with the Essenes, perhaps, that period of perhaps 15, 20 years or longer of spending his life off in the Judean wilderness. And if you Google pictures of the Judean wilderness, you know how harsh a place that was. Why would Luke mention specifically in two places that 
John spent much of his life in the wilderness. Why would he mention that? I suspect because it's an important fact. He wasn't the first one to spend time in the wilderness, though, was he? We remember the story of Moses at age 40, fleeing Egypt and all of the power and the trappings that go along with it because he was raised in Pharaoh's household. At age 40, he flees all of that and ends up spending the next 40 years of his life in the, I think the old way of saying it was the backside of the desert, right? (laughs) 40 years spent in the wilderness before he hears God speaking from that burning bush sending him back to Egypt to lead the people of God, the children of God, out of slavery. Forty years of preparation work for the final 40 years of his life leading the chosen people of God. I think of Israel itself. After having left Egypt, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, being punished, reaping the consequences of their failure to believe that God could lead them into that promised land, but also for those who survived that 40 years, all those that were under the age of 20 at the time that the journey began, those 40 years were being spent being shaped and molded into the people of God, learning who God is and what he expects of us and the grace that he pours out in our life and how we are to worship him on the Sabbath and how we are to live our lives on the days in between. What an education they received during those 40 years. That's a long time to go to school, right? But God had much to to say to them, much to do among them. I think of the years that David spent in the wilderness, perhaps 15 or 20 years between the time that he was first anointed to be the successor to lousy King Saul and the time that he was finally assuming the throne. Years, if you remember the stories in the Old Testament, years in which oftentimes he was running for his life, wasn't he? with opportunities to to seek revenge on Saul if he wanted to for Saul's paranoia. But instead, David was out there in the wilderness learning the mercy and patience of God, which he demonstrated on several occasions to King Saul, being shaped to become the king, the one who is a man after God's own heart, the one on whom descriptions of Jesus are largely based. I think of Elijah. He spent three years after he had announced the drought throughout Israel. He spent three years running, wandering, and hiding in the wilderness before finally being called back to that confrontation on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Three years in which he felt sorry for himself. (laughs) Three years in which God reminded him that he was not alone. Three years in which he somehow mustered up the humility, the obedience, the courage to finally go and preside over that extraordinary confrontation with false gods and the people who followed them. What a time. And of course, Jesus would spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted.
I've been thinking this past week a lot about wilderness and the silence that people experience and the molding that they experience. And I I began to think in terms of this pandemic for the last two years as a wilderness period in our lives. Can I get an amen? On, on the one hand, we can commiserate with Moses and Israel and David and Elijah and Jesus. We're going through a wilderness of sorts, but it's not just, oh, misery loves company, is it? If God could use wilderness wandering periods of years and days to, to shape people for what was coming next, then perhaps in this pandemic we can be optimistic that God is also shaping us for what comes next. John had been filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. If you remember that part of the story back in chapter 1, verse 15, even before he was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then following his birth in Zechariah's song, there's uh, at the end of chapter 1, it says the child grew and became strong in the Spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly in Israel. Wilderness silence was used by God to to speak to John during those years. It was used in his life by God to prepare him for the launching of the ministry of Jesus. So we can add John to our list of people who really benefited from his wilderness sojourn, can't we? While this preparation work was largely overseen by the Essenes, at some point, the distinct, clear word of God came to him, it says here in this reading. The word of God came to John. The wilderness silence was broken by the word of God. I love the fact that the word of God comes to us. The word of God continues to come to us. The word of God came to Zechariah in the temple. You remember? (laughs) Hey, old man, your barren old wife is going to have a baby. Freaked him right out. Nine months of not being able to harp on his wife or anybody else for that matter. (laughs) The word of God came to John in the wilderness with a commission that he should go and introduce the Messiah. The word of God came to me in some of the darkest days of my life. not only as a word, but as a presence in my life that helped me to persevere persevere through difficult times. As I look over this congregation, I, I know bits and pieces of your story. And I know there have been times when the word of God came to you. 
I'm still unsure of whether it's valid or not that the word of God came to the Deneen family to move to Rochester, New York, but but I trust them to be people of prayer, (laughs) that they have heard God leading them. That's often what happens when the word of God comes to us, isn't it? The wilderness silence is broken. The word of God comes to us and it changes our lives. I I thought about the effects of the word of God coming to John the Baptist. It gave him the boldness to live a counter-cultural life. Camel hair coats and locust diets and all that went along with that. It gave him the boldness to live a kingdom life. It gave him courage to speak truth to power, didn't it? He was the one who stood up to the elite coming out of Jerusalem down to the Jordan River to find out who this prophet in the wilderness was. The people that went down there included the Pharisees and the Sadducees and priests, people who were the power brokers of Israeli, uh, Israelite culture. And yet he, he spoke truth to them. He called them what they were, you brood of vipers. He spoke, spoke truth to Herod the king. Your marriage is not legitimate, he said. You, you can't do that. God is not pleased with that. That's against the law. Gave him the courage to do that, even though it would end his life. It gave him, the, the word of God coming to him, gave him the humility to play the role of Jesus' opening act. He was the older cousin. I don't know if you've had older cousins, but sometimes older cousins can kind of lord it over you, right? Older siblings can do that. Uh, Perhaps John was tempted to do that, but somewhere along the line, the spirit who had filled him from before he was born gave him the humility to say, he must become greater. I must become less. The voice of God, the the word of God coming to John gave him a willingness to lay down his life for the kingdom. Far earlier than he would have died, he was willing to lay down his life for the gospel. The word of God that came to John there in his wilderness silence was infinitely more than just a few words of uh, pep talk from God, wasn't it? (laughs) One more powerful than John was coming, he says. One more powerful. We know that person to be Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The God who would baptize us with the Holy Spirit was the one who was coming. The Holy Spirit is God in us. Emmanuel is God with us and praise the Lord for Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is God in us. And I don't know about you, but that's even better. So when the word of God came to John, what he was really saying is, I am going to be with you. The Messiah who is coming to be with you is going to be in you. 
It's not just information that comes to us when we pray, is it? It's infinitely more than information that comes to us when we pray. When we pray, God himself comes to us. I say, God himself comes to us. Did you pray this morning? Were you aware of the fact that God himself was there? (laughs) You weren't alone in your Barco lounger, no. (laughs) God was there with you, sharing that seat in you. One of the better books on prayer that I have read over the years is by Mark Thibodeau called The Armchair Mystic. If you want to write that down, it's a a slim little book, but it's been uh, one of the most transformational books that I've read on prayer. Mark Thibodeau, The Armchair Mystic. In that, he says, I define prayer, he says, as recognition of God, transformation by God, and union with God. What is prayer? It's the recognition of God, the transformation by God, and ultimately it's union with God, being one with God. This is what Jesus prayed for in the end of chapter 17 of John's Gospel, that we might be one with God. In that book, the armchair mystic Thibodeau says there are four stages of prayer, and I've mentioned these before, so you might say, oh, I recognize that. The first stage is talking at God. Now I lay me down to sleep, borrowing somebody else's words, talking at God. Second stage is talking to God, which in our youth often comes out sounding gimme, gimme, gimme talking to God about the things that are important to us. The third stage is listening to God. But the fourth stage is being with God. What is prayer? Talking at, talking to, listening, but ultimately, and perhaps most important, being with God. He writes, when I'm in the stage of listening to God, I am about the task of hearing God's voice in prayer. When I move into the stage of being with God, I continue to listen, but now I am listening to God's silence. Oftentimes we think the most important part of prayer is hearing God say something, right? But he says when we reach that fourth stage of being with God, what we're listening to is the silence of God. He says through this process of listening, precisely when God is silent, I dispose myself to hear his voice everywhere. In other words, if I can grow to hear God in the silence, then I can hear and see and taste and smell and touch God in everything. In other words, God is present, and we are with him, and he is with us. Another of my favorite authors on prayer is named Anthony Bloom. He was a Russian Orthodox metropolitan, an archbishop of sort in Russia. 
And he describes this being with God. He describes this presence of God in a book called Beginning to Pray, another slim volume that's worth reading. He tells this story. He writes, about 20 years ago, soon after my ordination, though he's a young priest, I was sent before Christmas to an old people's home, a nursing home. There lived an old lady who died sometime later at the age of 102. So she's 82-ish when this conversation takes place. She came to see me after my first celebration of the Eucharist and said, Father, I would like to have some advice about prayer. So I said, oh yes, ask so-and-so. She said, all these years I have been asking people who are reputed to know about prayer, and they have never given me a sensible reply. So I thought that as you probably know nothing, you may by chance blunder out the right thing. That was a very encouraging situation. And so I said, what's your problem? The old lady said, these 14 years I have been praying the Jesus prayer almost continually. The Jesus prayer is a one-line prayer that you repeat over and over again. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus prayer taken from words of Scripture. She says, these 14 years I've been praying the Jesus prayer almost continually, and never have I perceived God's presence at all. And that's the goal of the Jesus prayer, is that as you repeat that, you focus your mind on it, you sense God's presence. But she says, I, I, I haven't perceived the, the presence of God at all. So now Bloom speaking says, so I blundered out what I thought. I said, if you speak all the time, you don't give God a chance to place a word in. She said, what shall I do? I said, go to your room after breakfast, put it right, place your armchair in a strategic position that will leave behind your back all the dark corners, which are always in an old lady's room, into which the things are pushed so as not to be seen. In other words, turn your back on the clutter. Light your little lamp before the icon. An icon is a picture that Orthodox people use as a, a, an aid in prayer, a picture of a saint or one of the gospel characters. Light your lamp before the icon that you have, and first of all, take stock of your room. Just sit, look round, and try to see where you live, because I'm sure that if you have prayed all these 14 years, it is a long time since you have seen your room. Maybe your eyes have been closed the whole time. And then take your knitting and for 15 minutes knit before the face of God. This is his auspicious, erudite prayer wisdom to this old lady. Take your knitting and for 15 minutes knit before the face of God. But I forbid you to say one word of prayer. You just knit and try to enjoy the peace of your room. She didn't think it was very pious advice, but she took it. After a while, she came to see me and said, you know, it works. I said, what works? What happens? 
because I was very curious to know how my advice worked. And she said, I did just what you advised me to do. I got up, washed, put my room right, had breakfast, came back, made sure that nothing was there that would worry me, and then I settled in my armchair and thought, oh, how nice. I have 15 minutes during which I can do nothing without being guilty. And I looked round for the first time after years and thought, goodness, what a nice room I live in. A window opening onto the garden, a nice shaped room, enough space for me, the things I have collected for years. Then she said, I felt so quiet because the room was so peaceful. There was a clock ticking, but it didn't disturb the silence. Its ticking just underlined the fact that everything was still, so still. And after a while, I remembered that I must knit before the face of God, and so I began to knit. And I became more and more aware of the silence. The needles hit the armrest of my chair. The clock was ticking peacefully. There was nothing to bother about. I had no need of straining myself. And then I perceived that this silence was not simply an absence of noise. But the silence had substance. It was not absence of something, but presence of something. The silence had a density, a richness, and it began to pervade me. The silence around began to come and meet the silence in me. And then in the end, she said something very beautiful. She said, all of a sudden, I perceived that the silence was a presence. At the heart of the silence, there was he who is all stillness, all peace, all poise. After that, she lived for about ten more years, and she said that she could always find the silence when she was quiet and silent herself. This does not mean that she stopped praying. It means that she could sustain this contemplative silence for a while. Then her mind began to quiver, and she turned to vocal prayer until the mind was still and settled again. Then she dropped out of words into silence as before. Very often this could happen to us if instead of being so intent on doing things, we simply say, I am in God's presence. What a joy. Let us be still. What happens in our wilderness silence when the word of God comes to us? God comes to us. When our kids were younger, we had a, a discipline. I would not call it a prayer discipline, but now I suggest that maybe it was a prayer discipline. In the summer, we would put the television in the closet. We'd go two months or so without watching TV. With four little kids at home, there was never silence, mind you. <laughs> but there was silence of a sort. We didn't hear the blaring of the TV and all of its influence for a couple months. It made a difference in how we loved each other and how we treated each other and how we saw the world around us. 
Not a bad prayer discipline. Unplug the cable. One of the things that I do occasionally in the car is I'll go for a week or two without listening to the radio or the CDs or whatever it is that you've got plugged into your auxiliary jack. Just drive the car in silence and find out if God doesn't slip into the passenger seat. For those of you who like to exercise, walking on the treadmill or something like that, oftentimes I see people doing this with earbuds in their ear with uh, something playing on the iPod or iPad or cell phone or whatever. How about if we took the earbuds out and exercised in silence for a while? If you really want to get radical, consider taking a silent retreat. I'm sure many of you have been on retreats, retreats full of good eating and devotional times and worship services and games and fun kind of stuff. Well, this is a different kind of retreat. Find a quiet place and spend four hours or eight hours or 24 hours in silence. Don't even take your Bible because words that we read kind of break the silence. But just be silent in the presence of God and find out if he doesn't show up in a more tangible way. So in John's life, wilderness silence was followed by the coming of the word of God, the very presence of God in his life, which transformed him, did it not? It transformed him. He had a brief career, but it was a stellar career, doing exactly what God had intended for him to do. The thing that God had been preparing since before his own birth for him to do, the silence and wilderness and the coming of the word of God shaped him and produced the man that we see as a hero of New Testament faith. God is more than just an answer to our prayer request or a word of comfort or conviction. God's word is living. It's the very presence of God in our life. I would say it's not just information that comes to us in prayer, but God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. God with us. I hear some of you probably saying, Pastor, so what? Uh, This sermon series is introducing us or reintroducing or reminding us of various prayer disciplines, and today is silence. Wilderness silence, perhaps. What difference does it make when we're spending some time in silence? I would suggest to you that when we do that, God shows up. Not just with advice or answers or comfort, but God shows up. And what happens when God shows up? I say, what happens when God shows up? (laughs) Nothing stays the same once God shows up. Right? Transformation happens when God shows up. I don't know about you, but I want God to show up. 
oh yes, it's nice getting an answer to prayer, but I want more than anything else for God to show up. I want union with God. I want to be one with God because when that happens, everything changes. If I'm in a canoe in the Niagara River and the precipice is a couple hundred yards up ahead, I'm not helped by somebody on the shore hollering instructions on what to do. What I want is I want Jesus in the boat with me going over the precipice. John must have felt that way many times, like he was about to go over the precipice. Calling people a brood of vipers will bring the precipice even closer. But he found the courage and the humility and the boldness to do and say what he did because Jesus, God, just wasn't hollering instructions from the sideline. The word of God had come to him and was with him as he went over the precipice. to you that we have spent our Christian lives looking for information. We have been looking for answers to the quandaries of our life. We have been looking for direction as we move from place to place and job to job. We have sought out answers to so many prayers. We have asked why, when, what, Lord, this morning we confess that what we want more than information, more than answers, is you. Lord, we want to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are with us. That you are in us. That you will never leave us. You will never stop loving us. You will never forsake us. You will never abandon us. You will always be with us to the very end of the age. Lord, we want to know that beyond the shadow of a doubt. We want to have that kind of faith to carry us into tomorrow. Lord, we feel like, at least I feel like, we've been in a wilderness place of silence for two years now. We have lost people from our congregation who have drifted away, some who have walked away, some who have got caught up in other habits on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. People who have gone silent from our fellowship. Lord, we look at what remains and we ask, Lord, what can you do with this? What does a new normal look like for us? If we reboot, what does that mean? And Lord, we have felt like we've been in a wilderness silent place. And we want to know the coming of the word of God in the midst of all of that. We want to hear your voice, but Lord, more than that, we want to know your presence with us and among us. We want the answer to to Jesus' prayer 
that we would be one. One with you and one with one another. And Father, we believe that that only happens when you are in us. So Father, this week, teach us to be silent. Remind us to be silent. What will our knitting needles be this week? Lord Jesus, be with us. Because we can't live without you. And all of people, God's people say, Amen.